Can I begin? It's Raju Kumari. I did it, I did it, I did, I did it all by myself. And you're checking out Life Force on Ruckus Avenue Radio. You're listening to Ruckus Avenue Radio, global South Asian radio exclusively in partnership with Dash Radio. Welcome to our show, Life Force, where we explore the cosmic forces that awaken our lives. I'm your host, Shilpa Agarwal. Today, I'm happy to welcome poet, artist, educator, spoken word artist, and nature artist, Shanice John Muhammad, to talk about her third collection of poetry, Reminders on the Path. Described as, quote, a richly evocative recollection in which John Muhammad turns the language of loss into a grammar of presence tracing the movements of her generational forebearers through crossings from India to East Africa to North America, this gifted mystic poet reminds us that while our outer journeys bring dislocations too heavy to bear, our inner journeys bring us back to a shattered heart that finds in its remembering healing and wholeness in the present." End quote. Mm. Shanice John Muhammad was born and raised in Toronto with ancestral ties to Kenya, Kutch, and Gujarat. She has performed her work in venues across the world, including the Jaipur Literature Festival and the Aga Khan Museum in Toronto. A poet and educator, she regularly visits schools and community organizations to teach, perform, and inspire. Shanice has three collections of poetry published by Ma Wenzi House. Bleeding Light in 2010, Fire Smoke in 2014, and most recently, Reminders on the Path, published this year, 2021. Welcome, Shanice. Thank you so much for having me, Shilpa. It's wonderful to have you. So let's start with the opening two sentences of your author's note. I'm going to quote it here. Quote, I was born with a hole in my heart, a broken heart of sorts. Perhaps that is why I've always been drawn to Mevlana Rumi's words. You have to keep breaking your heart until it opens, end quote. Mm. Can you tell us what this means and how you've done this? Oh, I think I'm still doing it or yeah, attempting or to do it. Exactly. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's a lifelong process, but um, I meant it quite literally. So when I was nine months old, uh, it was discovered that I was born or I had a hole in my heart um, that wasn't closing. So sometimes babies are born with holes and they close over time, but mine just didn't. So I had to go through um, open heart surgery at nine months and then they discovered that uh, in addition to that issue I also had uh, a problem with my natural pacemaker so they had to put in an artificial pacemaker which helps to regulate my heartbeat uh, so I think that really laid the the ground for who I became or who I'm becoming or um, unbecoming maybe mm. <laughs> uh, because you know going through surgeries at a very young age uh, really shaped the way that I saw the world and I think I asked a lot of questions earlier than 
some people might, you know, why am I here? Why is this happening to me? Um, what's wrong with me? And so those things, uh, those questions have been compasses for my life. Mm-hmm. And there, I think there are a myriad of ways that people respond to trauma like that. Uh, either they can lean into it mm-hmm. or resist it. And I've mm-hmm. had my moments of resistance, of course, as humans do. Um, but I think there's also an opportunity to lean in. So what does it mean to lean into that brokenheartedness um, or that imperfection and and own it? And so that's something that I explore not just through my creative, but in my life, or at least try to explore in my life. Yeah, beautiful. So the book, um, as we talked about earlier, carries Rumi's energy of transformation, not only in the breaking of one's heart, but also this idea of stepping out of ordinary perceptions and seeking one's own truth. And I just want to read this short poetic snapshot on page 21 that to me captures this shift in perception. Thousands of roses in bloom, yet I seek to be the sun for the tightly closed bud. I read this and I was just like, wow, just wow, because you're moving from, you're moving from the flower receiving the sun to becoming the sun, giving to the flower. And it just so beautifully encapsulates the movement of transformation. And I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about this process of becoming the sun. It's so interesting that that's how you interpreted it. Because for me, it's I've always been this person that's like, why can't I save people? I mean, it's not a conscious thing. Mm. It's not a, a conscious um, decision to go around trying to save people from their suffering. But I think it's something that I've always wanted to do is, you know, be the light for someone or save them from themselves or from hurting themselves. And, and sometimes it's just not possible. It's just not possible. Um, so it's almost like I seek or I've sought out um, these tightly closed buds I want so badly to provide them with the light and nourishment to be free or to open up or to bloom. And I think it's a, it's a difficult truth to live with that mm-hmm. I can't always be that for people. Um, and maybe in my own blooming, um, as an example, that, that can help them see that they have that possibility. Um, so, you know, being the example as opposed to trying to be everything. Um, mm-hmm. So that's where I was coming from with it. But I, I also love that interpretation of, you know, wanting to be the sun to transform and, and that shift in perception mm-hmm. as well. So because I think we've all been there in terms of being this tightly closed bud. I mean, you talk about just having this hole in your heart and these surgeries and there is this contraction energy and then the move which I see very much in the collection is this opening, this expansiveness, this shifting, this transformation. And so I felt like that mm-hmm. poem in itself that captured actually the whole essence for me of, of the collection. 
Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, and I think it's also important to remember that sometimes we are the tightly closed bud and sometimes we are the bloom, right? And it's, I think it's the consistency of being, of blooming is that's what we're all trying to get to or many of us are trying to get to that place where we're blooming. But even, even when we are that tightly closed bud, we know the sun is out there. We know there's water. We know there's nourishment. So um, it's not like we're incomplete in that moment either, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, there's always that potential of blooming. Um, mm. We have everything we need. So, so yeah, it's, and I think that's also something I've been trying to resist with this collection, this sense of arriving and then everything's fine. It's mm -hmm. like there's co constant arriving. There's a constant kind of shifting between, um, blooming and 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 retracting and coming into yourself and then kind of losing sight of it and then coming back so it's it's almost like a a call to keep returning mm -hmm. yes i see that very much and i want to talk about becoming this idea of becoming later on in the show i think for me the idea of becoming the sun is really seeking your own source of light and really holding that inside. Speaking of movement, I want to just touch on the framework of this collection because you have this movement from inheritances to embark to return, R-E hyphen turn. Can you tell us about how you conceptualized this collection in terms of those three movements or those three words? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, my Books often come to me first as images. Mm -hmm. So even before I have words on the page or I have an idea of structure, I see it. I see it in my mind's eye. And so I just kept seeing this path uh, and moving through this path and the journey of starting with one's ancestors. So before you begin any journey, there are certain rites, rituals, traditions uh, before you embark right mm -hmm. and so you're carrying what your ancestors have given you maybe you ask for blessings from your ancestors or elders and then you go equipped you know you embark equip equipped for this journey and perhaps as you're moving through this path and on this journey there are things that start to weigh you down and so you know that's that middle section where it's like what do I need to hold on to and what's holding me down? Mm -hmm. What are the inheritances that I need to release um, that are no longer serving me as I move forward on my own path? And also with that, there's this disorientation because once you release those habits, ideas, beliefs, um, ways of seeing the world, you suddenly have to find your own orientation. Um, so you can get lost. You can veer off a path you can come back to a path you have to remake a path and so that middle section is all about that is as you're embarking or moving into your own path what are you releasing what are you holding on to um how are you um surrendering to being lost mm. <laughs> owning that and then and then the third section is once you've kind of found your bearings now it's time to return. And I, the reason I separated that is because I, I, I physically just seeing the movement of somebody stopping and turning around and coming back into themselves. Mm. Um, so maybe if they're moving 
in the wrong direction. It's like they have to, you have to pause, you have to take a moment and then orient yourself and then return. And it also, you know, that movement obviously mimics the movement or mirrors the movement of a dervish turning, turning back into the self or the heart. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's how I saw it. I, I saw it as a journey moving through a path and a journey moving through space and time. Beautiful. That's beautiful, Shanice. Thank you so much. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back to Life Force after this message from our station. This is Vijay Ayer, and you're listening to Life Force on Ruckus Avenue Radio. Welcome back to Life Force. I'm your host, Shilpa Agarwal, and I'm here with Toronto-based poet and educator, Shanice John Muhammad, talking about her latest collection of poetry, Reminders on the Path. I love your introduction, first of all. There's so much, it's so rich with just so much to think about before you even enter into the collection. So I want to just quote another line you say, which is, quote, I begin to ask myself how to own my own story as a woman of many intersections and privileges, as a descendant of women whose stories I may never know. End quote. And later in the acknowledgments, you write, quote, to my ancestors for stories I will never hear but know in my bones, end quote. And I want to get to this idea of knowing because I think you you really capture it. Because in the current kind of Western model of knowing, you know, the written word is privileged. It's kind of the end all be all. It's it's kind of what we we focus on a lot, but in addition to the ancient texts of our traditions, our cultures have a rich oral tradition, and we have other ways of knowing such as, and you touch on this, dreaming, intuition, songs, and cellular memory, actually, that are other ways of knowing. And I would say as part of this movement to decolonize knowledge, we are connecting back into these other ways of knowing. And can you tell us when you talk about not knowing your ancestors' stories, but knowing them in your bones, what does this mean to you? Mm. So I, I love that you touched upon these different ways of knowing. And I think for me, you know, there are a lot of questions of why or what was it like? So for example, you know, I never met my great grandmother, but I know she left Kutch uh, to come to East Africa to get married and she I didn't know this but she never saw her mother again she left I think she was about 17 and that's all I know and I know because I asked my grandmother the last time I went to visit her in Kenya but if I hadn't asked the question what happened or you know tell me about your your mother maybe that story would have never surfaced and so there are all these stories that are held that aren't being passed down um, mm -hmm. unless we ask these questions so it's more these questions that i will never get to ask i will never get to ask the question to my great-grandmother what was the journey like how did you feel you know did you know and i think you know there's a line in in one of my poems where it says did you know you would never return uh, so the those experiential questions of what it was like in her body 
mm-hmm. um, in her heart, those are questions I will never have answers to. But that said, um, you know, I was, I was reading somewhere that they're discovering that the trauma of grandmothers or um, th- that maternal lineage is passed on into uh, our DNA. Yeah, the genetics. Yeah, and I find that so fascinating. So it's like, oh, but these stories, even though they haven't been discovered, you know, by speaking them or hearing them, they're somewhere in me. They're somewhere in my bo- bones, in my body, in my blood, in my breath. And maybe that's enough. Maybe that's enough. And so it's like, if I'm more in my body, if I'm more embodied, maybe just through that act of embodying, um, I'm keeping their stories intact. Yes. Oh my God, that's so beautiful. I'm, I'm getting chills in my own body just hearing you speak about this. And I'm wondering actually, if you can read a poem from page 29, Geomancy. And geomancy mm-hmm. is a type of divination, isn't it? That yeah, is- yeah. I have a friend who um, is an urban geographer, and he introduced me to this term because I'd never heard of it. And it's basically using what we have, you know, on the land or through the land to kind of read the land for divination. So it might be, you know, seeing a cluster of trees and that telling us something about what we need to know, right? Um, so you might use tarot cards. There might be other ways of, of deciding what something means or what the answer is. But particularly for this, you're you're using the land or not using. I don't like the word using. Um, you're in conversation with the with the communing, land. Communing, yeah, communing. Yeah. With the land. yeah, yeah. And so I just found that really cool. And um, and again, it's this reconnection with land is something that I'm investigating. Uh, in my own in my own work and life and how we are disconnected from land and and use it right we use it for things um, but are we in relationship with it and so Mm -hmm. what does that mean to be in relationship Mm -hmm. Uh, and with this this particular poem actually did come to me as a dream so I woke up in the morning and I just had kind of snippets of this dream and um, and there were these qualities of divination happening with the land. So, wow, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I don't know what it means. I you know I I have no idea, um, but maybe I don't need to know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I would love for you to read for us. Sure. Great grandmother comes to me in a dream. Her eyes grayer than the steel of the waves before us. She hunches over the sand, fistful of something I can't see. She pours the contents into a pouch and hands it to me. My palm weighs down with the heaviness of river rocks. Flick, flick as they hit the sand. Flick, flick as we read their scatterings. Each rock is a question I can't answer. She turns to me, pressing her gnarled finger against my chest. It's your turn now. Which are burdens and which are anchors? (sighs) Wow. Wow. 
it was powerful when I read it. A hundred times more powerful when you read it. Wow. Thank you. I was really intrigued by this poem because my great-grandmother came to me when I was writing my first book, Haunting Bombay. And I felt like she was speaking to me and I couldn't understand. That was my first kind of experience of engagement with my ancestors. And I, and there was this presence of her and I was like, I had met her as a child, but this idea of passing down something and we, we have to be the ones to kind of receive it because we're the ones embodied on this earth, on this planet right now. And then this idea of like trying to understand what it is that it's been given to us. Mm. Can you talk a little bit more about this process of receiving from the ancestors and understanding what mm. they're giving to us? Yeah, I, you know, I think understanding is sometimes can be <laughs> obsessive, right? Wanting to understand and wanting to know now, um, what does it mean? What does it mean? And I think with this collection, or at least in the direction that I'm going in with my own um, writing, it's sitting with not knowing, sitting with not having all the answers and just receiving. And receiving so and trusting trusting that whatever is being given to me is what needs to be conveyed mm. and so, so you know it's that fine balance between um knowing your intention as a writer and having a, an objective for your readership or for the story which is important but then also kind of releasing um this need to control the narrative and mm. and let the story uh, live through you as opposed to trying to control the story um, or give it life right it's that it's actually giving you life and so in this process it's it's interesting i had a very clear idea of what i wanted to do when i first started as we all do i think <laughs> <laughs> and then we're humbled right um, for sure yeah so i started this process a couple of years ago and what i did is i just I just saw, you know, started to think of like place language connected to my ancestral homeland. So uh, not, not just India, but also uh, East Africa, Kenya, where my, my family is from. And I visited my grandmother's garden and I researched all the plants and the flora and the fauna. I really wanted to get deep into the specificity of that place. And then I made lists and then I wrote these names or even themes, big ideas on pieces of paper, different colored pieces of paper. And I just put them all out on my floor. Mm. So I had this big, almost mosaic of words, images, themes, questions, and then let it sit there. I didn't touch it. I didn't touch it for a while. And then I started to kind of intuitively rearrange it. And then a path, you know, I physically made a path with the words. And so, and I drew as well. So I was drawing images if things didn't come to me as words. And so it was really through that intuitive process of just 
letting it seep into, again, seep into my bones or subconsciously by just having it in my environment that it started to come through as a collection. And so, um, yeah, that's how I think ancestors speak to us. And it could be through a leaf that falls at our feet when we are on a nature walk. You know, it could be the the person that yells at us because we're walking too slow behind them and they're trying to catch the train, right? Like anything can be a message or an opportunity um, to listen a little carefully. And so uh, those are all reminders. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. So when we're listening and these, these things are being conveyed to us, these messages are being conveyed, I want to just touch back to the last line in your poem about what are the burdens and what are the anchors. I thought that was so beautifully asked. And what is the process in which you sift through that? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, I think for me, one of the questions that I've been investigating is what does it mean to be a future ancestor? Um, or Mark Gonzalez, who has this brilliant book, In Times of Terror, Wage Beauty, he he asks, it's not really a question, but a statement, who are we but ancestors in training? Mm. And so, you know, what does it mean to be in training to be an ancestor? And I think there's a responsibility with that of, okay, what have I inherited that has limited the way I see myself or the world? And... Um, those could be traditions, those could be, you know, long held beliefs that have been passed on from generation to generation. Um, and th those things are weighing us down, right? So it could be the way that we perceive our, our roles as women. Mm -hmm. It could be, um, you know, anti-black racism in, in our communities. It could be, um, mm -hmm. I find a lot or interestingly, like there's like a victim mentality that's kind of subconscious, mm -hmm. you know, this why me, why me, why did this have to happen? And so that's something very insidious because it's not as obvious mm. and, it, and it, it kind of permeates my bones and I have to be really careful about that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's again like being embodied in your own experience so that you can recognize those things and like, oh, what belongs to me and what is... What have I been given? And is this something that I want to hold on to? Or is this something that I need to release so that the next generation has a lighter journey? Mm. Um, and so that's what the burden and the anchor is. You know, if it's something that grounds you in who you are um, and continues these traditions that are beautiful, that we want to hold on to, um, that give us richness and depth and meaning and identity and um purpose that's beautiful but if it's if it's things that are you know pushing us back holding us back um then that's something that we have to i think individually investigate yeah that's beautiful i want to just ask you because you touched on the drawings in your collection are these drawings that you've made yourself yes yes can you tell me how they interact with the written word? Because they're beautiful, beautiful drawings. Thank you. I especially yeah. love the one at the beginning of Embark, Where is the Path? That was a gorgeous 
gorgeous drawing. That's one of my favorites, so I'm glad. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, my public my publisher said, "Oh, well, you know, it would be nice for you to do some drawings." And I was like, "Okay, no pressure." Um, I I do uh, nature art, so I I make sand art uh, and. I also use organic materials like dried flowers, um, petals, leaves to make, you know, in, intricate scenes or portraits. But while I might say I dabble in drawing uh, or painting, it's not my main art form. Mm -hmm. So initially we had this idea of doing sand art, but it doesn't translate as well onto the page. Right. So, so then it became these sketch drawings. So the first drawing, um, for our listeners who are not seeing the image, it's a rock and at the top of the rock is actually a bougainvillea flower, which I speak to a lot in my in my poetry and that's because I associate it with home, not just with Kenya, but also India. You, mm. you see these um, blooms of bougainvillea all over, falling over fences and um, littering the ground. So. That's why this is on the inheritances page because mm -hmm. it harkens to that um, those homelands. Mm -hmm. And then if you move to embark, um, I was I had en envisioned this gate uh, moving through almost like a paradise garden. Mm. Uh, so you have to first before you even get to the garden or out into the the world, you have to be initiated by moving through a gate or a threshold. So that came to me quite strongly. It needed to be a gate. It's a gate made of stone. And then there's a tree and then in the center, there's a, a fountain with an orb. And yeah, I, I just kept seeing it over and over again. Again, it came to me first before I even started to draw it. And I just knew there had to be some water, some sustenance before that journey begins. Mm. And then if you move to the third section, which is return, it's a, a spiral of stones, um, almost like a labyrinth that you can walk to and move to the center of. So it's a symbolic representation of coming back into yourself, returning to the center. And then the final section, which is just one poem, it's home. And this is a rock again, and next to the rock is a very simple flower, um, a weed that, uh, it's a white clover, and it's something that most people would overlook here. You, you know, they're quite abundant, um, but I used to love them. They were my childhood flower, um, and I used to pick them up and collect them, and so that's again like returning to to myself coming home to myself oh my goodness beautiful thank you for sharing that that is thank wonderful you. thank thank you thank you for asking yeah no it, it's they're beautiful images thank you shanice we will be right back to life force after this message from our station hi this is vivek tawari and you're listening to life force on ruckus avenue radio welcome back to life force I'm here with Toronto-based poet and educator Shanice John Mohammed, talking about her latest collection of poetry, Reminders on the Path. So I want to talk a little bit about memory. You write about it in terms of our connection to the earth and geological time. It reminded me of a colleague shared 
recently a project of hers uh, with this concept of agential realism, which is matter doesn't merely exist, it becomes. Matter mm. doesn't merely exist, it becomes. So in a way, there's this idea of, of memory in the rocks and the earth, and there's this idea of fixity not existing that we are becoming. So we have like a rock which feels so fixed and we have this and then we have this idea of becoming and then as you said unbecoming or unlearning right so how do we negotiate this whole spectrum of fixity becoming memory unmemory or you know the lack of memory how how would we negotiate that well that's a big question and i think that's something that i'm trying to answer or maybe not answer um i think searching for an answer might be um a lost cause, right? It, it, it might just be something that we need to navigate um, or learn how to navigate in each moment and each experience. So, so for example, you know, being on this land, being here on Turtle Island, there are certain realities that we can't ignore about the memory of this land. Mm -hmm. And so moving with that responsibility. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a settler? What does it mean to um, be a steward of the land? Um, what does it mean to listen? Not just to what the land needs, but, you know, indigenous nations that are fighting for land back, right? So that's something that has a very practical and necessary um, action. Yes. Or embodiment. Yeah. Um, so, I think that comes down to again, like where you are and how you listen to memory, or speak to memory, or converse with memory. Um, so even when I move to Kenya now, or not move, but when I'm in Kenya, it's the same sense of like there's a perception that may not be uh, rooted in reality. So when I when I go to Kenya, it's like, oh, this is my grandfather's home you know this is my my home uh, i feel more connected to the soil and this earth but when i investigate a little further it's like wait a minute this i'm not indigenous my my family's not indigenous to this land right so but we have memory here mm -hmm. but there's but there's also memory of a place that i've never been right so i think being able to hold all of that and not as a way to feel i think there's a potential feeling ungrounded in that right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that oh well i don't belong anywhere or there's no sense of identity or home or whatever but i think it's it's that impermanence that can actually ground us in who we are or who we decide to be mm -hmm. um because that's the only thing that's true. Things change, memory changes, places change, our relationship to place changes. Um, but what d doesn't change is how we, or maybe it does change, how we speak to ourselves um, and how we, um, how we can shift our perception. That's in our control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's just something that I've been investigating because I had this very <laughs> fixed idea of, of home and then scratching beneath that surface is, is not comfortable you know you yeah. don't want to see it <laughs> you don't want to see that oh wait i don't really have a home yeah um yeah or th this this home is home because of the displacement of other people mm -hmm. 
that's not a comfortable truth, but yeah. it is the truth. Yeah. And so it's now the question is, what do we do with that truth? Yeah. And that's, that's, that, that's where the grounding comes in. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. I want to touch more on this idea of grounding and memory. And I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind reading another poem from page eight, Blood Memory. Mm -hmm. And this is from the first segment of your book, The Inheritances. Sure. What does it mean to read the land and for the land to read you? What does it mean for a rock to remember your touch, for a lake to remember your body? Does the earth ever wash off or does it sink into the skin? A cartography of memory, a terrain of travel, a grain of sand behind the ear, a blade of grass in the left lung, a drop of salt water in the heart, a promise of return etched into the heart. Wow. Just gorgeous. Just gorgeous. I love that there's this dialogue happening here, this mutual resonance of the earth and the self that we are you know, what does it mean for a lake to remember your body? And then this idea of a blade of grass in the left lung, that the earth is also imprinting itself upon us. Can you talk more about this kind of conversation that's happening? Yeah. Again, I think it goes back to this, you know, this sense of us using the earth or the earth is there to serve us. But again, my question is always, how are we in relationship with the earth? And um, I actually took an, a really powerful nature writing course. And one of the questions was around that. And, and someone said, but we are nature. We are part of nature. And I think Andy Goldsworthy also says that, you know, we are part of nature or we are nature ourselves. So to kind of distance ourselves from the earth as if it's a separate entity from us um, and has no consciousness of its own um, it's a very strange thing to me and it's it's something that I think I've unconsciously adapted you know over the years and so it's how do I get back to that relationship of um, remembering and being remembered um, being being part of nature and um, sitting in nature not to necessarily use it or find an answer but to just be with it to just commune with it and I think that's something that we've forgotten how to do because there is a sense of like oh well I'm going you know especially during the pandemic I found that like a lot of people were using it as a recreational source mm-hmm mm -hmm. And that's okay. That's one element of it. But again, it's like, how are you in relationship? Um, because I would walk and see discarded masks on the on the ground. Mm -hmm. So it's like, here is this earth, the earth that's providing, and and yet we're still destroying it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's a very hard thing to witness and to understand you know we can see the imprint of humans upon the earth 
but are we listening to her imprint upon us and what she's saying? And mm -hmm. um, how do we enter into that kind of dialogue? I think that's really necessary, especially right now. Yeah, and it's interesting because, um, again, I think it's this di feeling, this dis distancing from, from Earth. It's like, and that's a perception change. That's mm -hmm. something that has to change in perception. It's nothing else is going to change until we change how we view our relationship to, to it. So can you tell me why titled it Blood Memory? <laughs> it felt right. You know, it's so funny because sometimes people read poems and they, ha they have um, interpretations that I never anticipated, which is the amazing thing about, about poetry and, and readership. But yeah, it just felt like this is something that is historical. It's, um, it's not just in my body, it's in the many bodies that have come before me. It's mm -hmm. in the bodies that will come after me. It's, um, you know, like there, there could be elements of, of places in me that I've never been to. I mean, we have stardust in us, yeah, right? That's right. That's so right. it's, it is that sense of expansiveness of, of blood memory beyond just my own physical being. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. I want to continue this conversation about memory and becoming. And so uh, to talk a little bit more about becoming, I'd love for you to read one last poem for us, which is on page 49, Rift Valley Song 2. Mm -hmm. This was a fun one to write. Beautiful. Thank you. Okay, Rift Valley Song 2. What will be remembered when you are forgotten? A prick of acacia thorn, the four-note call of a hadada, cape honeysuckle falling over itself, mabati roofs hot in the gaze of a midday sun, flies hovering over warmed hides of lean cows, the crackle of charcoal fires sparking embers into twilight when we are thousands of years into dust, you will split open into a rift sea. Cattle bones settling at the bottom of a new ocean, glass beads swirling into rainbow whirlpools, whale song drowning out hill song, memory washed clean by weft of waves in our forgetting becoming wow 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 okay Whew. beautiful <laughs> <laughs> that hits you it hits you it hit me mm. so how do you answer and we don't need to answer or how do you explore maybe this question of what will be remembered when you are forgotten. And I think you touched on this earlier when you talked about us being ancestors in training. And also from the previous poem, this idea of our imprint on the earth. Mm. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about this process of what will be remembered when you are forgotten? Because we will ultimately be forgotten. But something of us will be remembered. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this particular poem, it was written, um, I had read an article about how eventually the Rift Valley, which is very close to where my family lives, will turn into a sea. Mm. Um, so the entire valley will you know, fill up with water, all those memories, um, all these places that we've imprinted memory upon um, will be, and I was thinking about it, I'm like, oh, it'll be lost. It'll be lost to the ocean. And then something in me said, well, why is that a loss? Isn't that just another form of becoming? Mm. Um, so it's like the ocean will still contain all of that just in another form um so it's almost like well there's this obsession with what you know who we will become so that people will remember us or that will be remembered and that's such an ego driven um, um endeavor you know like I, I i want to be remembered i don't want to be forgotten and it's almost like well maybe maybe it's in those micro movements maybe it's in those very minute experiences or details like the prick of an acacia thorn or um handing someone um a tissue at the right moment like maybe that's what you'll be remembered for because in that moment you provided what was needed mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's enough and that's mm -hmm. enough and wh or why is that not enough Mm -hmm. And that's something that I ask myself a lot. Well, why is it not enough? Why is it not enough to be of use now? Mm. Um, and is that not enough of a legacy? Um, or because if we're of use now, then generations ahead of us will uh, be able to be of use to others, mm -hmm. right? Because they've seen it modeled. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's, that's, that's enough, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so that's what I'm trying to get at, really, is allowing ourselves to be trans transformed by our experiences um, and to sit with that discomfort of mm -hmm. potentially being forgotten. Names might be forgotten, achievements might be forgotten, um, but that imprint of, of being of use, of being of service, um, somehow lives, lives on. Beautiful. Yeah. I, yeah, totally. I agree with that. And speaking of transformation, what has transformed in you in the process of writing this collection? <laughs> oh, wow. What hasn't? Um, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I think there's such, I, again, like I came at this book with such a strong idea of what it was going to be. Mm -hmm. And it was a long process because, you know, my publisher said, oh, we, you know, it's been a while, you got to get another book out there. And so there was all this pressure that, oh, this has got to be better than the last one. This has got to say something different. This has got to be this. This has got to be that. This has got to. And then the book just said, can you let me be what I need to be? Mm. Right. And so I had to kind of surrender to that. Um, and I think what it's teaching me, too, is that the way that it's going to be received or perceived is not in my control um, no matter how much i may want to dictate how it lands or where it lands for people i have to i have to um, walk the talk of this book yeah um, and so the way that it's resonating 
will resonate mm -hmm. regardless of, of what I want or don't want. And uh, that's what it's teaching me. And even just the idea of reminders of it, of, of reminders on the path, like that title in itself, it's, it's, it's a call for me to uh, pay deeper attention to what's around me and to um, how I'm framing things, you know, because I think with poetry, you want things to be beautiful, mm. you know, uh, poets are in love with language and so mm -hmm. they want to craft language that is beautiful, mm -hmm. but sometimes reminders are ugly mm -hmm. or what yes. we perceive, perceive to be ugly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so reshaping that perception of what a reminder looks like, that's the continuous work yeah. for me. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Shanice. We'll be right back Thank to Life Force for our last segment after this message from our station. Hi, this is Karen David, and you're listening to Life Force on Ruckus Avenue Radio. Welcome back to Life Force. I'm here with Toronto-based poet and educator Shanice John Mohammed, talking about her latest collection of poetry, Reminders on the Path. Shanice, if there's one thing you hope your readers will take away from this collection, what would it be? Uh, it would be to ask the question, what are my reminders? Yeah. What are my reminders? Um, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. What are my reminders? I love that. That's very, very, very powerful. Yeah. So, sorry, did you want to add something? No, I was just going to say, and I think it's also, you know, it's it's almost impossible to to foresee how people will receive this book and what will resonate with them and how it sits with them. And so that's something I'm leaving room for as well. So, uh, you know, my hope might be, I, you know, I hope that they do ask this question of themselves, but also just that they resonate in whatever way feels um, authentic for them. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. So you've just published this collection of poetry and you're kind of in this process of interviewing and going out with it into the world. Is that process allowing you to then also write and to be receptive to reminders on the path of what's stirring inside you now? Hmm. I'm giving it a bit of space. I have an idea for the next book, which is not going to be uh, poetry. Wow. So that's a little scary. <laughs> More like terrifying. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. So, and this has been an idea I've had for a little while, but it's it's almost, I think also with, you know, um, with the pandemic and this this whole notion of embodiment or embodying every moment and every day, or that's something that I'm trying to move towards. I'm by no means there yet, but one of my friends, Sufi friend of mine said, um, you know, what is it that I want to do before I die? Like, what is the project that needs to be out there before 
um, I die? And I was like, oh gosh, that's a huge question. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's also, it's also um, a calling to do what's needed in this moment uh, without the preciousness of it being perfect. Because I'm, I, you know, I feel like a lot of writers yeah. and I'm like this too. It's like, I need to have this idea completely figured out before I start writing. Mm -hmm, I need to, mm -hmm. um, I need to have everything in place. I can't just start. Uh, but you know, there's no good time to start unless you just start it. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm trying to convince myself of. I'm not there yet. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's like, Shanice, come on now. Yeah. Just, just get it on the page. It doesn't have to be perfect. Um, and that was something that also I struggled with, with reminders as well. It's just getting it out there because this concept and then the reality were not aligning. Um, mm -hmm. And instead of seeing that as something negative, it's just, this is what it needs to be in this moment. It mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it's going to stay this way forever. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what I'm struggling with or, uh, working with at the moment uh, and uh, I'm hoping to be able to have some time in the next year to to at least start the writing process for this this other project which will be nonfiction kind of hoping lyrical essays so wow we'll see. wow lyrical essays amazing I can't wait to read that thank you um, so you've chosen the song Scars by Alicia Brilla to end this interview with. Can you tell us why? Well, Alicia is one of my favorite artists based here. Uh, and I really love this song because it's about embracing scars. Um, and I have a lot of scars just by default of, of all my surgeries, but also life, internal and external scars. And mm -hmm. I think again this this societal um, emphasis on perfection mm -hmm. uh, it's something that it's a narrative that I have to actively and many of us I think especially women uh, have to work against actively work against and so I find that this song reframes that in a way that is so beautiful and um, each, each scar has a story that's worth telling. Mm -hmm. So that's what I feel poetry does as well. And it's something that I was investigating in my own work as yeah. I'm walking through this path and maybe getting scratched by thorns or falling on my hands and having all these scars. But th these are markers for the journey. Yeah. Yeah. So mm -hmm. Wonderful. And my last question is, what gives you life? What gives me life? Presence. I find that when I'm present with whatever I'm doing, um, it gives me life because I'm not, I'm not grasping for things to be different. I'm not looking for life outside of life. It's just what it needs to be, it is. So mm -hmm. when, I, when I can have those tiny slivers of time where I'm fully present with something or with myself, um, that's, that's life-giving. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I totally get that. 
Well, thank you so much, Shanice. It has been such a joy speaking with you today. Really very, very moving to speak about your poetry and your journey and your insights. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Shilpa, for reading with such care and thoughtfulness. And it's, you know, it's one thing to write something. It's another thing to have someone truly engage with your work. So thank you. Thank you. So to find out more about Shanice John Mohammed or to order her beautiful collection of poetry, and she has three now, go to www.shanizjohnmohammed.com. That's S-H-E-N-I-Z-J-A-N-M-O-H-A-M-E-D. Shanizjohnmohammed.com. And connect with me at Author Shilpa or Radio Life Force. Watch and share the replay of this episode of Life Force on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Ruckus Avenue Radio. And we end today's episode with Alicia Brilla's song, Scars. And it opens like this. This one is from a heartbreak. This one is from a fall. I fell in love too quickly. I fell off my bicycle. This one is from a disease, an impact that came and left a wound. I've been collecting these marks ever since I left the womb. There are scars shining on my body like stars. Hi, I'm Joy from Raleigh, North Carolina, and I love Ruckus Radio. 